Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's episode, I'm excited to bring you my episode with Lan Shui Zhao, the founding partner of Basiset Ventures. Founded in 2017 and based in Silicon Valley, Basiset has now raised $301 million across two funds. I've been really looking forward to this episode as Lan and team truly run their firm as a startup and have developed a unique data science-driven approach towards sourcing and investing. If you're curious, do check out their thesis on what makes a successful founder at Basiset.com. Lon previously led the corporate development strategy team at Dropbox during its most acquisitive time and managed teams at McKinsey advising on big data and AI. Lon also has a PhD in human psychology. In this episode, we cover Lon's move from studying human brain function to investing in AI, different approaches to committing to the VC world, and how she uses technology to optimize and scale her business. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. On the podcast, we've spoken a lot about the importance of getting fund operations right. One of those things that you must do is getting the right fund administrator. And we're pleased to have this episode brought to you by one of the best in the business in Standish Management, an employee-owned company. As the largest provider of fund admins of EC, they currently serve approximately 750 venture capital funds with over $150 billion in committed capital under admin. Standish has also been designed by experienced CFOs with a deep understanding of the service needs of both the finance departments and GPs at every stage of the product lifecycle. Standish can also handle all the needs of a finance department, so GPs can do what they do best, and that's invest and help entrepreneurs. Check them out at standishmanagement.com. Lon, it's so great to have you on the show. So good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So first, first of all, congrats on the close of fund too. Very exciting. I'm excited to uh, see you build the firm. But before we get into where you are from a firm standpoint and some of the things that you're doing, let's go back and look at your story and how you got into venture. You were at Dropbox. You've been in consulting roles. And one of the things I always wonder when I talk to my guests is, what was that internal calculus of deciding to be a venture capitalist? I was fortunate enough to be uh, you know, joined Dropbox in 2013. Uh, it's pretty early days. And that was pretty game changing for me because Dropbox was the company that kind of pioneered product led growth and bottom up adoption. And the companies I was um, telling to help build a corp dev team, by the way, the company I was talking to at the time were generation defining company. I didn't know about them back then, but now they are all like Slack and Zoom. Airtable, they were all pretty small back then. It was so fascinating and, and mind-blowing just to interact with these companies and founders and I grew up with them in a way, right, through Dropbox. So when I was leaving Dropbox, uh, to your question, um, I was getting offers from other VC firms and <laughs> to, to join them and, uh, you know, a few other operating roles. Those weren't really interesting to me. I wasn't even considering joining another uh, firm at the time. It was, I was pretty convinced about a couple of things. One, automation AI is coming for sure. I need to be in some shape or form involved in, in this period. Two, because of my role at Dropbox uh, being corp dev, I had the chance of interacting with a lot of VCs. And you know, in talking about the thesis and the way I think about investing, they were very intrigued and wanted to have me uh, join part of their firm, which only further gave me confidence that I was onto something. <laughs> I was convinced that, you know, the approach is different enough and I felt really good about the deal flow I was having thanks to Dropbox, uh, especially on the enterprise uh, SaaS side of things. Um, it felt pretty ready 
for me to invest. The harder question for me, and uh, going to your question about long-term commitment and kind of this being hard, is actually, do I want to do this on my own as an individual angel investor slash solo capitalist, whatever you call the hottest name in this market right now, versus building an institution, having uh, some substantial LP backing, building a team and commit for the next decades. That was much harder for me to decide because you make so much more commitment <laughs> in the building institutional part. But ultimately, I decided this is bigger than me. I got to go do the right thing. It's an interesting point that you bring up, because if you think about joining the existing firm, while there's a commitment there, starting your own firm is a decade, two decade, maybe even three decade commitment. I want to maybe go back to when you started and go inside your brain a little bit and how you looked at that long-term commitment and said, hey, I've never been a VC before. I've never actually done this you know, full-time. How did you get comfortable with the 20 or 30-year commitment? That's a hard question. If I just do this at Android Investor, there doesn't have to be 20, 30-year investment. You can be an Android Investor one day and not the other day, right? So that's actually, if you think about it that way, it's actually, it depends on how you do it, how you structure it. It might, it doesn't need to be, which is why I think why there are so many investors just like starting out on their own, just you know, investing to test things out. I thought about what would be the right thing to do and how to be on the map immediately. So I thought about, I actually ran the model a bunch of times and I really could not make sense of a 10 to 20 million dollar fund. That is for what I wanted to do. I didn't think I would have the best shot uh, in finding the best deals if I just go out and, yeah, and, and write 200K, 300K checks. I didn't think founders would be interested in uh, talking to me and, or like let us do uh, our diligence in a way that I felt good for our piece. So my approach is that I need to have the conviction, I need to do the diligence, I need to be convinced with opportunity, which is uh, the style is very, very much a fit with lean or co-leading deals. And you know, if I do that math, the only way to make this work is actually write substantial checks and seed checks and, and do it that way. There are other approaches being like follow following checks. I, that's not how I function. That's not a good fit with me personally. Just running the math, it just only makes sense if uh, the fund size is large enough, it only makes sense that I build a team. It only makes sense. That's the best way to actually also re return money to LPs in a way that felt comfortable and versus leaving things to, to chance. It's a pretty rational decision. There are a lot of benefits and drawbacks comes with it. Going back to wanting to raise you know, fund size that was substantially enough to be a significant part of somebody's early cap table, and you did end up raising $135 million for fund one. The other side of the coin, obviously, is yes, you want that type of strategy and you want to raise a bigger fund, but you're still a first-time manager, haven't done institutional investing before. And what often happens is, despite all your best efforts to raise the type of capital you want, the LP side might not be there, the demand may not be there, and you obviously raise at a time where there are so many different funds coming to market. How did you de-risk that in your mind that you knew you can raise, let's say, $135 million? in a time where a lot of first-time managers can't come close to that? I definitely do not know I can I can raise $135 million. I still didn't know. Every time going on fundraising, it's kind of like testing product market fit. What is my product market fit? Before I, I went out, I didn't know. I actually started thinking about like $20 million fund because that's literally what everyone told me to do. I went out and talking to LPs and 
trying to understand what is it that LPs like about me, like about my approach, and very quickly understand, okay, I just there's one model that works for me, and this is the model. And the the tricky part becomes like, do can I find LPs who believe this is also the right thing to do? And once we found these people, let's you know these institution people, like whoever, uh, let, let's just go for it, right? So that process took a little bit of time, and it, it helped me understand what is my value proposition and help me understand what is my LP fund fit. But by no means I understood like what it takes to raise a large fund. And even today, every time when I raising fund two, I still went through the, the same process because the world has significantly changed uh, during COVID. The LPs are also different. Everyone's also trying to figure out if I don't meet you in person, what is my investment strategy? It still took a while took a lot of thinking. The process didn't take very long, like three months probably, but the thinking kind of iteration, the understanding my place or BSV's place in the market, that's probably the most important to understand. I think managers who go out trying to close funding, like first, I definitely encourage them to understand where is their place and what is their market fit. Because other, like if you don't know that, it's very, very hard to raise anything. Uh, especially from very sophisticated LPs. Yeah, and and I, I do want to get into your place in the market and where you fit into the larger ecosystem in a bit. But going back to that first fund, because a lot of people listening are actually raising their first fund, and today it is different. And you, and you mentioned we're in an environment where in-person uh, conversations and meetings aren't happening yet. They will at some point, and we'll, we'll start to see some travel pick up. But going back to that first fund, you were out there you didn't know if you could raise that 135, but you knew that you wanted to raise a fund of some substantial size. Or some of the unique insights that you learned that helped LPs know exactly what they were buying into? And how did you find that GPLP fit? Yeah, <clears throat> I think a couple of things. This is what, what I learned in the past probably three and a half, four years um, being in the market. One is um, LPs on the LP side, they're also changing very quickly. So I would segment LPs into a different packets. There are LPs who are more of a risk taker, like first mover, or foundry or staffer. They're very, very active in the market. They understand exactly what you know founders and uh, investors are talking about. They're very active in that market. And there are LPs who are a little bit removed from that, who will need to look at other signals. And other signal being sometimes, what are the other funds, uh, funds like following you? Do you have larger... VCs, uh, you know, Sequoia Benchmark Founders Fund backing you, meaning like they say great things, they'll follow your deals, they will introduce their LPs to you, right? And there are the further removed LPs will never back uh, emerging manager. They will only back you if you have a long track record, they'll only back you if you're spin off for another fund, uh, even as, uh, you know, emerging manager. So understanding that segmentation matters a lot. I, you know, I started understanding that and I started going out talking, and there are family office and individuals which are mostly kind of like very high beta. It's very hard to like categorize them in any ways. It kind of depends on who you're talking to. So I spent time understanding that having different data points to triangulate up down to single uh, person in the fund, right? So that really helped me understand like when I talk to different LPs, my value proposition sometimes is a little bit different. I was very surprised. Uh, some LPs, like the universal feedback came back one of the strong reasons a lot of LPs want to back us because the sheer drive and hustle and the hard work. 
I did not expect that. I know I worked very hard. I know like, you know, from second grade, I worked 15 hours a day, probably like willingly, but I didn't know that could even be a value proposition where, you know, some LPs are looking for. Uh, other LPs look for differentiation. Back in 2017, running a uh, thematic funds in AI automation is a differentiator. There are not many funds doing that. I also like doing that solo. It was pretty different. Today, not so much. Every fund is doing future of work. LPs are tired of it. I think we're very, very different. But to some LPs, we're really different because they understand this market. To others, every firm, every firm is having data scientists. Like how you're different. So I think it's very, very nuanced in terms of which type of LP you talk to, who you talk to. Ultimately, a lot of you're still investing in the team, the drive, and the hustle that we're able to figure out and fine tune our place in the market and be able to find the best deal. So I think that's ultimately still what they're investing. But these different kind of more, more tangible points, uh, you know, we can talk about with different LPs, probably a little bit different things. Yeah, when you when you were describing that, I, mean, I was thinking about this analogy of a startup, thinking about when you are going out and fundraising, understand the different segments of potential investors and finding out the ones that are right fit. But as you move from a seed round to a series A round, Oftentimes, you're thinking about what are those tangible milestones you need to get to the next, let's say, the next level of investor, the different type of investors, and you sort of back solve for that. With a fund, it's, a, it's tougher, right? Because what's going to happen in two or three years? People want to see execution. They want to say, see that you've done what you said you were going to do. You've built out a team. You're disciplined, all those type of things. But there's a lot of work that I think goes into building those type of relationships with those LPs that could come into a fund, too, that maybe weren't the type of investors that come into fund one. What work did you do between those two funds? And then how did you think about composing your LP base for fund two versus fund one? I actually think the fund story is very much similar to the company's story in a sense that you still have to write a storyline. You still have to find supporting facts to support what you're saying, which is actually exactly what we've been doing for the past year. So the story is a little bit different from a company. When you have a company, there's in our market, there's in our thesis, here are the metrics supporting that. For funds, uh, you can still do that. The way you support it is a little bit different. Like for, for us, like for example, you know, we're one of the very few machine learning, enabled machine learning focused funds, tech, tech line, right? They're only in like four drivers of fund success. You gotta see all the deals, you gotta pick the winners, you gotta win the deals, you gotta support them in, in, in the best way possible. They're literally like just only four drivers that allows you to be the best performing funds. And you need to support that with the data. How do you, how many deals do you see? Where are you seeing the deals? How can you see this other people, uh, funds? So when you're picking, like you really need to, to, to speak to the conversion rate. In early stage venture, it's very hard to have DPI or some of the metrics later stage venture do, but you can still look at conversion rate. Our CTA conversion is almost exceptionally high. It's o- over 90%, right? Like you have a number of companies doing Bs and Cs. Those are, early initial data uh, you can provide to LPs they can look at and kind of like decide whether they believe your story or not. But it's still very much kind of a storytelling process. For me, I think the core difference between fund one and fund two is fund one, I was optimizing for, I need to get into the market, get down to business. Let's you just go do that. Fund two, now I'm in a place to pick the best LPs. I need to future them uh, in a way that I wasn't able to before. And you understand like whether they actually understand what I'm doing versus, okay, now you're kind of like much harder fund. 
I want to get into the fund. So that was actually core thing I was trying to understand, trying to filter out. The other thing is we have a uh, vast majority uh, LP money from nonprofit. This was like, we're not in a position to optimize for that for fund one, but in fund two, it became very important. It became, if we're going to work, like our team worked incredibly hard. If we're going to work that hard. We want to be feeling good of making money for good cost, right? So that, that's another uh, consideration. And for institutions, uh, you know, I think in the past several years, I understand way more about how they operate and what they're looking for than uh, the first time around. There's definitely a ton of learning uh, along so many different dimensions. But the story, the essence, it doesn't change. It is a good place to be to be able to pick and choose your LPs, but in a way to really uh, optimize for the long term, right? Get the right people, have them benefit from what you're doing, and also build you know, a durable base of partners that are going to be with you over a very, very long period of time. You mentioned machine learning. As we look at the new era of venture capital, we are seeing a lot of change in terms of models and ways people add value to portfolio companies. I was looking at your website and it sort of reads like a portfolio company in many ways, right? So you have a you have a CTO, you have a head of d- data science. Walk us through why you decided to go down the route of being structured more like a portfolio company, but being more technically focused on how you operate your business. When I was a Dropbox uh, CFO back then, Sujay, uh, he's like, can you help uh, us build up uh, CorpDev? And I started doing that and knowing exactly zero of what to do. Uh, I started meeting companies and I, have, I would have eight to 10 meetings every single day. At the end of the day, I would just sit there and thinking about why did I waste so much time meeting people who are just completely irrelevant to me? And I just thinking about, I think I benefited from not knowing the right approach at the time. So I thought about actually thinking from first principle point of view, exactly how uh, I should do this to make conversion math work. Like for example, if I just meet one more relevant people person, a day, that means two to 300 more relevant people in a year, which means I can do two or more, two or three more deals per year. So that commercial math works. And that's how kind of we start to optimize the funnel at Dropbox. And we found some great deals like uh, Musical.ly, Binance, Cockroach Labs. So fast forward BSV, uh, now we've had years of experience kind of fine tuning, building that. I was able to do that super quickly the second time around. But the logic and thesis behind is still the same. We need to, uh, the system will need to optimize for three things. One, the breadth of our deal flow. We're all human. Before CD investing, you just invest in your friends. Like there aren't that many great companies. Now, literally everyone is building companies. And in April alone, I think there are at least a dozen unicorn came out. So it's just much harder. It's a numbers game. We need to have the breadth and the machine really helps us do that much better. And two, depth. Uh, you're seeing the founder psychology profile. All humans are biased uh, in some ways uh, because of a near-term and long-term uh, experience. And we want to avoid that or at least minimize that through understanding more data about a human, their psychology, their behavior. So that's the depth our system captures that. And the third one is timing. It's really important when you capture the founder at the right time. If they're leaving a company right now, Given the market, you want to know them before they even leave a company. So those are the metrics. It's like timing is really important because the rounds are down super quickly. So these are three things we optimize for with the system. And our team is structured around that to help us better optimize along different dimensions. Union, uh, our CTO, who has been a very long-term technical advisor, um, she's like super experienced in both diligencing companies, but also like building, architecting a system that is scalable. Rachel, who's been running our team for, for, for several years now, actually sits with our investment team because a lot of the insights 
it's very uh, iterative. You know, we'll ship three times a week and sometimes we'll have insight today. Our team will just implement it the, the second day, which is really important because the market changes really fast. So having a tech team that super closely work with the investment team that help us optimize along the dimensions we care about is what I believe to be very essential to today's seed station investing because it's substantially different from 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. And we've spent some time with some of your members and it's very clear that they're closely integrated with the, the entire investment process from start to finish. The thing um, that sometimes I always think about as an outsider looking at companies or, or funds in particular, at least on the investing side, that are using technology and data science to either source or to drive decision making is how, how do you reconcile between using it and, and, and getting all the benefits of automation, but not over relying on it? Because what often happens with data is it's backward looking. And some of those things that happened in the past may not be a good indication of what's going to happen in the future. And of course, when you build your own mo models, there's often bias that's embedded in there. So how do you think about that? Exactly, which is why we don't use it for decision-making. So it's a, it's very much a supporting tool. The way I always describe it to people is the way I think about our tech team is like Ironman, uh, right? Like you still make decisions. Robert Downey Jr. being Ironman still make decisions as a person, but he will have all the armor that supports him do that. So he will be see further, move faster, and have much more powerful weapon to help him being a better, more powerful super superhuman. So uh, our team still make the final decision. Our model doesn't predict outcome. I think that would be very, very hard for any tech to do. I don't think venture will ever be fully automated for that reason, but it does give a lot, give us a lot of data. When is the founder leaving a company? Well, what is the productivity on, on GitHub? Like, you know, what's the growth and uh, issues, number of issues, growth, things like that. It's very hard for a human to keep track of a daily basis, but that's what machine can do. So we use it as a supporting function, like it's armor, will never replace human decision. And so in, in that case, you're getting the data and it's allowing you to discover things that you might not otherwise not in the, in the sea of opportunities and things out there. And it forces you to focus on the things that are most relevant to you, right? It, it gives you that, you know, as you mentioned, armor. Now you have this interesting part of your philosophy that is centered around founder psychology and super superpower thesis. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and you have this great deck that's on the deck. It's uh, on the website itself, which you can take a look. I found it really interesting as, as a founder, but I'd be curious to hear from you on one, how can founders use that? And second, more importantly, like what were the counterintuitive things that you found when you went through that study? So I did a whole PhD on how to measure human brain uh, functions. And there are a lot of really nuanced things that people often ignore. Like uh, in our today's uh, mainstream media, you see very few examples and it's always the big personality drive the conversation. But want founders to know this is like, that's not the whole, Bill Gates is not the only successful entrepreneur. He is extremely successful, but not all, every successful entrepreneur look like Bill Gates or have the personality. So, and there are critical psychology traits and will be a lot more powerful combining together in one way versus another. For example, uh, we're looking at stubbornness as one of the traits. It's actually fairly neutral as a, it's not all bad or all good. It, you have to combine with the right recipe. If you're stubborn and always right, which, you know, I imagine Steve Jobs would be, 
and, and yes, great to be stubborn. You build something people don't even know that they want, which is iPhone, and you're successful. But if you're stubborn and wrong all the time, it makes it very, very hard to find part market fit. Because the, the uh, core thing is to really listen to what customer wants and have that customer empathy will help you iterate and find part market fit much faster. Trades like that, it's very nuanced. It's when founders think about their own journey, it's helpful to think about what is what is my superpower? How do I find uh, my part market fit the fastest? There are different archetypes we end up uh, discovering. One of them is uh, what we call humble operator. These are people who are strong in execution, very humble, uh, not necessarily out there all the time, but often than not, they're actually the largest proportion of successful entrepreneurs because they're just so fantastic at executing. You can argue that's number one important factor of the success of, uh, of the company, right? Uh, another uh, archetype is uh, what we call agile visionary, young founders who can quickly iterate, who can learn super fast and in the college and brothers probably belong to this camp. So it doesn't mean like if you're young, you're 19 year old, 20 year old, you can be successful. It really depends on what is your special sauce that makes you a great founder compared to the others. I guess the implication to founders is think about what makes you unique and what is your strength and how do you leverage your strength in building your company to find part market fit and uh, in places where you're not so strong at, how do you uh, hire to complement you and help you be better? So that's the main implication. And there are uh, you know, other findings that are counterintuitive and obviously happy to chat more. Do you find there, there, there are any characteristics in particular that have been more predictive of company success within the founder or the founding team? Yeah, so execution by far the most important. Uh, if a team does not execute, there's no way the company will be successful. But execution alone does not sufficiently predict a success of the company. You have to execute, you have to be a great market, you have to still find part market, part market fit, right? So that's number one. If, if there's one thing I would call out, that's execution. Another thing that's, also, that's uh, very important is empathy to customers. Because in early stage company, you've got to be able to find your part market fit. You either just know it and and are right about it, or you got to listen to customers and find what they want and build for it, right? These two trades are probably the top of the list, and there are a number of others. For example, a lot of the founders are very charismatic, right? Charismatic founders alone does not predict predict outcome of uh, company success, but it does you help you raise money. You raise more money, you can hire a better team. You got to make sure a company is on a good trajectory. And people, someone else can execute uh, or can help you find find partner, which is much harder than doing that by yourself. So uh, some of the other trades are kind of second order. Some are first order. I prefer founders who are first order, like you know, can drive the success of business versus second order founder. It really help us think through the nuance of what drives a company's success and what makes a great founder. Because every VC talk about, oh, and a great founder, what does that actually mean? When digging to that, it's very, very different every, uh, you know, from VC to VC. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. And it, it fits into your in, entire methodology of using uh, data science technology and understanding of human behavior to be able to leverage and execute your, your own investment philosophy. And, it, and that started to get me thinking about your place in the industry. You mentioned future of work. Everyone's doing it. The last 15 months have made it very clear that all the things that were going to happen have accelerated and have been condensed in the last you know, 12 months. And so I'm sure 
there's so many companies that are now attacking, whether it's automation, future work, and really the real economy. But as you think about your own place in the industry, right? So you have your segment, you have your methodology of how you execute. But we are seeing a lot of pressure for seed funds come from two sides. One, the smaller new, new entrants coming to market that are those 20, 30, $40 million funds. And then you have pressure coming from those upstream investors that you know, are downstream investors that are now getting earlier and earlier. As funds that are in the 100 to $200 million range, and I know fund two was 165, how do you see your place in the market today? And how do you defend against these different competitive pressures that are coming on both sides? I'm, for one, very excited about the, what's happening at late stage, because now I think we can just actually double down and lead large seed deals, and maybe they can go to Tiger next to the next round. And I think you know the, the industry is changing substantially, which I respect investors on both sides. But for us specifically, it's pretty clear that we are good at betting on early markets, early founder that are not consensus-driven yet uh, when we come in to understand the market. A lot of markets, like when we started betting on open source in 2017, it wasn't a thing. People don't invest in open source were you know, first uh, to market with back to founder, with back founders who are also pretty unique uh, from that point of view. So I think like, we own a substantial amount of companies uh, with back early and we, uh, we have conviction we move fast. We're the first one <clears throat> writing, uh, you know, term sheet to Rasa, to Ergon, to Pass, and all these great companies. So I think our strength is really be earlier and have, still have the conviction to, to own big, which our fund size supports that. There are two strategies that works in this market. One is basically you're a tiger. You have lots of money. You go across stage with multiple shots on the go. You're kind of even indexing the entire market. You, you want to have the velocity of deals to make it work, right? The other side of the coin is like you got to play early, smart, uh, super high conviction Become before this market or the founder become obvious to others. So I think that these are only two winning strategy. We play with the first winning strategy. I think we're pretty good at doing that. We're not good at the second strategy, <laughs> uh, which is you know leave, leave we'll leave it to the later stage funds. And this is why you see all latest funds getting bigger and bigger, billion dollar funds because they are they have to compete with each other. The strategy is very much kind of similar in that way. And and Tiger is doing a great job with that. I think others will be. I think in between will be much harder is my view. Yeah. So, so what do you think then? Because you are conviction-based, you're investing in things that may not be completely consensus-driven, which sometimes is a lonely island to be in, but it's also the, the place where you can make a lot of money if you invest in a non-consensus way and are right, right? If you're right consistently, you're right consistently on the right companies, obviously, you will do exceptionally well. Now, one of the things that people have done, of course, to defend against competition, especially from those later stage investors that are coming and doing seed or series A is raise your font size, right? Because some of the term sheets that some of your companies are getting now are a degree of magnitude bigger and from big firms who are promising the world, right? In terms of the entire platform, you kept the font size around the same, right? Like it was 165 versus 135. What do you say about those folks that say, well, you know, now instead of 165, we're going to do 250 or 300. How do you think about your own model of staying at that size? And does that continue? What do you see firms in your, in your size range doing over the next, you know, two, three, four years? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm really proud that we uh, stay true to our model. I, 
I could have raised 250, 200 this time, but the math is much harder. So right now in between two, one to 200, I can come on 10 to 10%, 15% and still do that deal. I can even own maybe eight to 9% and still have this company return my funds. Uh, once you get to above 200, 200, 300, you got to own 15 to 20%, which by definition, you're squeezing out other investors in a very competitive market. Like it gets harder and harder, right? So in this composition of the funds, we can have a number of companies with like 20% if we, can, we ever get there, but we don't have to. And that's the whole beauty of uh, smaller funds. I mean, uh, ironically, by smaller fund, uh, 165 is not that small. It's large enough, but not so large that the pressure to own like 20, 25% uh, of every single company. That's really the core reason I want to keep the fund small. I want to have a much higher multiple of the fund, which is much easier when the fund size is still small. I agree with that 100%. And I've said this, that you know the smaller fund sizes do afford you a degree of flexibility when it comes to things like ownership. And the bigger you get, the more likely you're going to make your business model the company's business model and the company's problem, right? And so you can, you can get into companies. You don't have to box out investors. You can be collaborative. And I think it's, it's really important. That's why I've actually been very, very bullish on some of the, uh, the smaller managers that are even sub $10 million because they're low friction checks to founders and they're getting into some of the best companies. So I, I totally agree with that. I want to now maybe go to our final segment zoom out a little bit for you in particular. You've been doing this now four years, right? Since you started Basis Set. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in the seat of being an institutional investor? The one thing uh, I was constantly surprised by is uh, some deals are getting done, not because this is going to be a great company, it's because they can pass a partnership, which is actually uh, turned out to be one of the important factors for some of the, especially non-contest-driven deals, right? which is, you know, give us a unique advantage of actually doing something other probably larger firms just wouldn't do in early stage. That makes total sense. And this next question, in the past, I would say, well, you've only done it four years. There's probably not a lot of companies you've missed. With companies scaling so quickly, even two or three years in, you could look at a company in 2017 or 18 or 19 even and say, wow, like I really, we saw this company, we missed it and we learned something from it. Is there a company, whether... It was a function of you looking at it in passing or a company that the technology or the, the data didn't actually show it that you look back and say, God, we missed this and we've learned something really interesting from it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I missed, I missed plenty. Missed ByteDance in 2014. Missed QuietShow in 2015. Both are hundreds of billions of our companies. Missed Chime. Uh, missed meaning like I met them in the past. Chime, uh, a huge company today. I, what I learned from that is uh, we're just not great at doing consumer deals. <laughs> we see all these fantastic consumer companies that look so strange uh, in its early days. There's no way for us to predict whether they'll be successful or not. You know, we gotta. It's a different type of diligence that uh, we just might not not be used to be doing. I mean, we don't do like consumer much consumer at all today. But if we were to do it, we gotta really think hard about. Okay, if we look at lip syncing service with teenagers, we've got to be able to just go talk a lot of teenagers to see like what's actually going on there versus, haha, this is like, you know, very strange product. We don't know how to do it like pass, right? It's like, even though we don't invest in consumer, passing these deals and seeing how successful they are is still so painful. <laughs> uh, hundreds of billions of dollars per company. If I just had in- investing one company back then, which is ByteDance, you know, a uh, different story. It is hard to sometimes 
get away from the temptation of investing in things that look really super interesting and a lot of people are excited about that does speak more to FOMO. And in, in your case, like you, you understand exactly what your GP market fit is and where you uniquely positioned to not only assess these companies, but add value. So I totally respect that. The last question I have is whether it be at Dropbox or now, you know, running BSV, there's often these group of mentors that investors have or people that they look up to. Are there any investors out there that you in particular say, hey, I model myself a lot around a lot of the philosophies they've taught me? And if so, like, who is that? And what have they taught you in particular? I really respect Alperlin, the sheer drive and hard work, even after being so successful and being mentor for so long. I respect that a ton. Whenever we, we talk about it, I really appreciate his time. and He's always so generous, generous with his time and helping me thinking through different model of fund construction that. I just really respect that uh, from someone who's so so successful and like still works so hard, you know. Chris Saka, uh, who kind of pioneered early stage investing, the model is very different. The way he think thinks about thinks about construction, think about being early, human funds small, disciplined, and consistently getting that right. I respect that. It's just a different game he's playing versus a lot of other VCs. And finally, I don't know anyone at Tiger. I don't know any. Uh, I don't know many of these questions, but I actually really respect their spending so big, hiring consultants, doing their diligence, actually good diligence. I was impressed by that. I had a couple of deals. Really, it's game changing for founders. It's so clean, no board seat. They come and kind of completely wipe out the market at a later stage. And now VCs like they win deals, right? And they do good deals. It's not like they just throw money around randomly. They do good diligence. So I think all three are different and and then game changing for venture. So I respect all of that. Yeah, that's great. And and um, you know, with Tiger, it, it has been interesting how they've changed the game, especially with the activity and the and the type of deals they're getting into. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how this market evolves over the uh, the coming years. I'm excited for your journey. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. And again, congrats on the uh, the close of fun too. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Samir. Congrats on your new companies too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Lon and Basis Adventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.